All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for those that are gathered here to fellowship in your Son's great name. Father, thank you for keeping this ministry alive and kicking in a perverse generation. Thank you for giving us truth to spread. Thank you for giving us the greatest thing to protect, to preserve. That is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your precious Son. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening as members of the congregation, and we pray also for those that are still lost, who are most sick. Father, we are so grateful and most grateful and thankful for your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make an evening like this a reality. We do this ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, still thrilled uh, with this series. Uh, I do want to open up this evening with a quote from a 1B.W. Newton on the topic of sin. You'll have to forgive his. He's an old school uh, preacher from uh, England. And he writes pretty lofty, so just um, just remember that these notes are on the website, too, if you're going to look up any words. Just saying. <clears throat> Antecedent to all trespasses and acts of sin, before any apprehension of good or evil has dawned upon our hearts, before any notion respecting God has been formed in our souls, before we have uttered a word or conceived a thought, Sin, essential sin, is found to dwell within us. Bound up with our being, it enters into every sensation, lives in every thought, sways every faculty. If the senses by means of which we communicate with the external world had never acted, if our eye had never seen and our ear had never heard, if our throat had never proved itself to be an open sepulcher, breathing forth corruption, if our tongue had never shown itself to be set on fire of hell, still, still, sin would have been the secret mistress of that world of thought and feeling which is found within us, and every hidden impulse, there would have been enmity against God. Amen. I think one of the greatest errors any man or woman can ever make is to presume that sin somehow only exists in their acknowledgement of it. This is one of the nuances of this series that I've been noting uh, there's all kinds of ways that we make ourselves escape artists. Uh, we justify the ungodliness in us. We justify sin. We try to find loopholes like expert attorneys might. And one of the greatest errors we can make is to presume that sin only exists in the acknowledgement of it. Um, whether we like to think about sin this way or not, doesn't matter one bit. We are born diseased. Let me give you a, a way to drive this home. 
does a person with unknown cancer within themselves somehow not have cancer? Is cancer any less cancer just because ill effects haven't yet been felt as a result of its presence? Religious people will have you answer in the affirmative, believe it or not, which is tantamount to saying that sin only exists in their life when they say they are tempted in, in fall. That's sin. That sin only exists in their life when they are tempted in fall. And that's the only and that's the essence and that's the presence of sin itself, and that's one of the great deceptions. And that's why we're on this topic, the deceitfulness of sin. So this is one of the greatest lies and sins even of all time. And frankly, it's one of the oldest tricks in the book, one that Satan uses to trip up his enemies all the time. Ask yourselves, <clears throat> did Job ever know that it was Satan who was torturing him? No. Does that mean that Job could positively state that it was not Satan behind his suffering? You know, because he didn't know. Because he didn't see Satan. So he could posit, if you would, or postulate that, therefore, since I don't see him, since I don't know it's Satan, it can't be Satan. No. However, if Job was a religious man, like his three friends, he would have said, well, since Satan's not behind all of this, it must be my own fault somehow. In other words, he would put himself, in this era of thinking, he would have put himself on a religious treadmill, and that's what his friends wanted him to do, because he didn't know it was Satan. So reflect on this. <clears throat> At the base of every false religion is the assertion of the sovereignty of man. At the base of every false religion is the assertion of the sovereignty of man. At the base of every false religion is man's attempt to usurp God's sovereign right to rule and control his creation. This ultimately gives man the right to judge himself as opposed to God judging him. This ultimately gives man the right to judge himself as opposed to God's judging him. And one of the downsides of this is what evil calls bad. Remember, in the realm of evil, there's a good and a bad. I mean, unbelievers live by that. There's a good and bad out there, but it's not ours, you see. And since they're unbelievers, their sovereign is themselves, or the world, or the God of this world. But it's certainly not God. And one of the downsides of playing that game is what evil calls bad, the way, say, two unbelievers conflict with each other over wrongdoings. In other words, ungodly people still formulate strong opinions about what's right and wrong. In fact, their own ungodly morality, or in it, they define good and bad, and then operate under those definitions. 
The Bible teaches us that in the absence of love, in the absence of love, it is impossible to do anything good, which means that both good and bad, as defined by the ungodly, is evil. So, if you're interested, uh, look up a blog I wrote a while back titled, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, where I go into this sort of sidebar that uh, evil in this world takes. Remember, I don't remember if you remember this, but it was basically two ballparks. In the evil ballpark, there were two teams called good and evil. And crowds cheered for good and evil and what have you. But it was completely the wrong ballpark. That whole ballpark, from God's perspective, was evil. And it was that contrasted with his version of good, a whole nother ballpark that made the difference. And what man does is, and what Satan wants man to do is to remain in a deception over in this ballpark where good and evil exists, but the whole of it is actually evil from God's perspective because there's no love for God in that whole stadium, in that whole ballpark. There's no love for God. So the whole thing whether or not unbelievers call it good or evil, they're all under their, the premises of their own morality, under their own sovereignty, it's all bad because none of it is done out of love for God. So I go into that in greater detail. Take me out to the ball games, probably, I don't know, a couple of years ago now. Um, but for now, let's go to John 5.38. John 5.38. <clears throat> I know I just laid a lot on you, but it'll make sense as we go on. Hopefully you weren't planning on your normal five-minute wake-up time. Gotcha. John 5.38 You do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. In other words, Jesus was addressing people who specialized in good and bad. Right? Specialized in it. The same people he says, I never knew you. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? but I never knew you because all the stuff you did was love for self, not love for my Father. So I don't know you. I never knew you. And he casts them off. And that's what he just said in verse 42. You do not have the love of God in yourselves. So you can do all these things. You can look the part. You can play for the, you know, the team with the name good on the back of it in this ballpark over here. But it's all evil as far as I'm concerned. So Jesus was addressing people who specialized in good and bad, or good and evil. Let's call them here the hyper-religious crowd, whatever you want to call them. Up here on the board is the point the Spirit's trying to make here this evening right out of the gate. Without love for God, it is impossible for anyone with a bad root to spring forth good fruit that is pleasing to God. No matter how good you, even if, if, if every time you get up to bat in this ballpark over here, you hit a grand slam home run. 
God still says, I don't care. You're doing it for your glory. This is about my glory. I'm the sovereign here. You're doing it for your glory. So no matter what you do over here, I don't care how many home runs you hit, or how many RBIs, or whatever, it doesn't matter. I don't care whose team you play for over here. You don't love me, so it's all bad. And that's the first sentence there. It's impossible for anyone with a bad root to spring forth good fruit that is pleasing to God. Love is the principal affection that guides all activities rightly. Love is the principal affection that guides all activities rightly. You can do the same activity, but to do it right, there has to be love. There has to be an affection for the holy God of the universe. Without love, even the most noble actions are worthless to God, for they aren't directed towards Him. That's the problem. They're to the glory of man. I mean, if you're the sovereign in your own little realm, who gets all the glory at the end of the day? You do. Where's everything directed? To you. That's the whole point of being and usurping the sovereignty of God. You no longer give glory to God. You give glory to whoever you've given sovereignty to, which is usually the person in the mirror. Because that's what the flesh likes. The flesh likes itself. Teshuka. Right? So, without love, even the most noble actions are worthless to God, for they aren't directed towards Him. Quote, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8.8. 8. That's, that's scripture you should remember, by the way, um, when someone comes up to you and say, wait a minute, you tell me God's not happy when Joe Unbeliever helps the old lady across the street? No, I mean, he's not pleased with that. Not in the spiritual sense. Can they do, is that a relative good thing? Yeah, in that ballpark. Hmm. Is that a relatively good, is that better than tripping the old lady and throwing it in traffic? I suppose. Right? <laughs> but here's the key. The reason you don't do that is because you'd go to jail. The reason you don't do that is because you'd look like a jackass. The reason you don't do that is all for you. It's your reputation that you're preserving, after all. So when you help someone across the street, it's you that gets glory. That's not love for God. That's love for you. That's all that we're saying here. And that's why I started off with uh, that Newton guy, because that's all he was saying. Before you do anything, you're rotten to the core. Even if you do something noble, it doesn't matter. Because look at Romans 8.8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Any questions? You mean if I do that? There's no if statements. That's it. Because the flesh is rotten, it does everything for the flesh. Really polished up flesh, you know? It's like a polished turd, right? Shiny and looks kind of like a marble after a while. Don't try this at home. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? It can look nice, maybe. Do you know what I'm saying, right? It's garbage. It's still a turd. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Concentrate. Part of the blindness of being lost, or even in a moment dominated by sin as a believer, is that we can't see true north. In other words, our affections even aren't 
directed rightly. We can't see true north. An unbeliever has a faulty compass. They're totally hopeless. It's like, you know, drop them in the jungle, their compass is going, I don't know, pick a spot. Believers have magnetic forces messing with theirs. So there's, wants to point towards true north, but, you know, there's some, like, you know, it's kind of like veer and do one of these numbers. It's entirely possible, though, here's the point, it's entirely possible to be doing and saying all the right things and still be walking in the wrong direction. It's entirely possible to say or do all the right things and still be walking in the wrong direction. Dwell on that this week, this weekend, please. I'll give you a little more from our, who apparently seems to be the author of the month, Mr. Pink. <clears throat> Love is... Up here on the board, love is that which animates the obedience which is agreeable to God. Love, love, love that. Love is that which animates the obedience which is agreeable to God. In other words, if something else is animating obedience, it's not agreeable to God. It's not pleasing to God. You're doing it for some other reason. In other words, if it's not out of affection somewhere in there, if it's not out of affection for God, then your obedience is garbage. Love is that which animates the obedience which is agreeable to God. Quote, if a man love me, he will keep my words. John 14, 23. Love is the very life and substance of everything which is gratifying to God. Love is the very life and substance of everything which is gratifying to God. Up here on the board, as the principle of obedience, love takes the precedence, for faith works by love, Galatians 5, 6. Note the order in the injunction, quote, let us consider one another to provoke one unto love and two to good works. Notice the order, he says. Hebrews 10.24 Stir up the affections and good works will follow as a stirring up of the coals causes the flames to rise. In other words, after all the teaching I've been giving you, there's nothing, I've said this in my post, there is not a damn thing I'm ever going to say to you to stir you up to good works. The only thing that will ever stir you up to good works is your love for Him. That's it. That's your motivation. If you don't love Him, you won't do it. And if you do it, it's with wrong motivation. That's what the Bible tells us. Stir up the affections and good works will follow. As the stirring up of the coals causes the flames to rise. Up here on the board, last quote. It is love which makes all the divine commandments, quote, not grievous. 1 John 5, 3, not burdensome. It is love which makes all the divine commandments, quote, not grievous. We heartily agree with Charnock, another theologian, in that one word, love, God hath wrapped up all the devotion He requires of us. 
What's the fulfillment of the law? Love. Do you have to memorize every aspect of Holy Scripture per se, strictly speaking? No. You have to love the Lord. Again, look at John. Are you in John 5 still? John 5.42 But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Yeah, I see all the things you're doing. This is Jesus amongst all the do-gooders, right? The ones who love to point out good and evil. He said, I see what you're all doing, but you don't have the love of God in yourself. Again, up here on the board. Without love for God, it is impossible for anyone with a bad root to spring forth good fruit that is pleasing to God. Love is the principal affection that guides all activities rightly. Rightly. Without love, even the most noble actions are worthless to God, for they aren't directed towards Him. Quote, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 8. So this stands in stark contradiction to the believer who is functioning with full affection and direction towards God. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.9. 2 Corinthians 5.9. So that stands in contradiction to the believer who does have affection and therefore direction towards God. And that's just my way of saying the same thing that Pink was saying. Basically, you know, stir up the affections and you'll get obedience. Stir up love and you'll get an obedient uh, slave. A slave that loves their master is going to do as his master or her, her master asks. It's that simple. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, what? What's our great ambition in this life? What's your great ambition in this life? That's a good question, isn't it? I've been asking myself that a lot lately. What the heck is preoccupying you? What is, what's on your mind right now? What's your great ambition? Is it to be pleasing to Him or somehow pleasing to yourself? Who am I in love with in that moment? God or me? Who am I trying to please? To stir up my affections towards myself, you know what I do? I do stuff for me. If I stir up affections for God, you know what? I don't want to think about me. I want to do stuff for God. Which usually, he says, go do something for someone else. That's usually what he says, because that's what Jesus did. So it makes sense. Therefore, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. By grace, we have been given new faculties that understand truth. And it's upon this and its ability to add wisdom that we are able to discern right and wrong. Our job, then, as believers, is to examine ourselves very closely to see where our affections lie in each moment of time. Where are your affections right now? Probably you're sitting in a, in a, in a church, probably on the Lord. The Spirit's probably all over you, you know. But where are they out there? I don't get you for that long. You're not in here very often compared to the rest of the week. Where are they out there? Examine yourselves. Where are your affections? Who are they directed towards? 
Because what he's saying is, even if you're walking in the right direction, if your affections are with someone else other than God, I don't want it. It's no good. It's not pleasing to me. Because now you're just, as we would say, going through the motions. Is that really what the holy God of the universe deserves out of us? Is that really what we propose brings glory to God, going through the motions? I think not. And that's what the Spirit's saying. He's saying, examine yourself. Make sure you are not deceived, because this all goes back to our title, the deception or the deceitfulness of sin. Make sure you're not deceived. Make sure you're not playing that same game that the religious people in Jesus' day were saying, they were playing. Where they loved themselves, but they were playing God's game. You see, they were playing a baseball game. It looked a lot like the real thing, but it was all evil. And as the Bible says, every so often we can dip our toe over there. We can play in that little game over there. <clears throat> so we have to examine ourselves. For example, two siblings call up their mother and tell her that they love her. One is a believer and the other is not. While the believer tells their mother that they love her, Jesus Christ is glorified because deep in their heart their love is rooted in Him. However, when the unbeliever tells their mother they love her, their love is fleshly, which means that God is not glorified in it. In fact, the flesh will actually walk away from that conversation with a new, you know, feather in its cap, saying to itself, you see that? I made my mom feel good. Therefore, I'm a good person. Who needs God when I can be good on my own? And so on. You get the point. Go to 1 John 3.21. 1 John 3.21. That's the way the flesh operates. It doesn't do anything for the love of God. It does everything for the love of self. Bible says we're born totally depraved. You know what that means? We can do nothing good. Nothing! On our own. 1 John 3.21 Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Pleasing in His sight. What's our ambition? To be pleasing to Him. You want the blessings that are promised in the Bible? Then guess what? Your affections have to be towards God. God's not fooled because God sees the heart, you see. God's never fooled. You could be walking your entire life in the right, quote, direction. But if your affections are somewhere else, it's no good. And therefore, all promises are off. All that peace you want so badly. Sorry. You don't want the peace that I have to give because that requires submission. <laughs> that requires love. And you're too preoccupied with yourself. You love yourself too much. So you're not going to get those blessings. On Sunday and Tuesday, we spent a fair amount of time investigating the nature of sin, even 
And I would invite you to do so and continue to do so because I believe personifying it helps. It helps. It helps give it <clears throat> uh, the ability to move and animate in us because we know that we are sinful. That sin is not just something we can point to. We've already gone through that. Those like the rudimentary parts and you know, parts one, two through four or something like that. I even wrote a blog, you know, people love their lists. Sin is not a list. It's much, much bigger than that. And that's why I will borrow from Newton again up here on the board. If our throat had never proved itself to be an open sepulcher, breathing forth corruption, if our tongue had never shown itself to be set on fire of hell, still sin would have been the secret mistress of that world of thought and feeling which is found within us, and every hidden impulse there would have been enmity against God. Every impulse, everything that's telling you, do, you know, love self, love the world, love these things that God says you should not love those things. You cannot love the world and me at the same time. That's what the Bible tells us. With that said, when we personify sin, we might say up here on the board, if sin were a person, he'd never let a good person alone. Well, you know what? When you were saved, you were made a brand new good person, a new creature. That creature can't do anything but be good. That's the one that goes to heaven. Right? So if sin were a person, he'd never let a good person alone. So that's your ugly roommate, right? <laughs> You're stuck. Who will separate me? You're stuck with the sin nature, but yet you identify with a new nature. So you're stuck together. You're shackled with this thing that won't let you go. It won't let you alone even. It's not like, okay, remember uh, oh, Felix Unger and Oscar, remember those? Didn't they do that one time in an episode? They put a line down the middle. Nobody? Yeah, maybe. Oscar and Ian Felix. Right? You be all clean and you be messy. Right? Eventually this happens. You can't do that. Because the, the, the evil one in your life, the uh, sin nature, will never let you alone. Why? Because as we've learned from Holy Scripture, from the beginning, sin is never satisfied with a quality. It must dominate. And that's that Hebrew word teshuka, dominate. It's never satisfied. It's not satisfied with a line down the middle. It'll always jump the line. You could sit there and go, I'm cool just being over here. But it's not. So there's no truce. There's no that thing. The chief antagonist to sin's strategy, of course, is light. Sin is darkness. Light decimates darkness. One of my favorite analogs in the Bible. Light decimates darkness. Darkness is completely helpless against light. Even a little match can extinguish darkness. So light decimates darkness. So the chief antagonist to sin's strategy is light, because sin is darkness. In fact, in the presence of light, 
it's impossible for darkness to even exist. In this way, darkness is defenseless against the light, which is why it hates the light, as do all of sin's proponents. Go to John 3.19. John 3.19. So this is a little bit on the motivation of sin. If we're to personify sin the way we are, we understand that it has a motivation that has certain, quote, faculties, certain affections, so to speak. John 3.19, certain, uh, you know, abilities. This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for the deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed exposed Scott mentioned the Greek on Tuesday but I'll mention it again this evening it's from Elig Cho up here on the board exposed properly to convince with solid compelling evidence especially to expose prove wrong connect Strong's has it in two parts a Reprove, rebuke, discipline, be, expose, show to be guilty. Now, who wants that? Who wants to be outed? Anybody? Anybody want to go in a public setting and be outing? And be outed? Of course not. And what if you're actually evil? What if someone has come up here right now, someone ha- so, this doesn't work, but someone was a mind reader or was following you around this whole week? And then came up here and said, hey, Pastor, can I have the pulpit for just about five minutes? I got some slides and some pictures I took of this person, of their phone, of their computer, of them in front of their computer, of them in front of somebody they shouldn't be in front of, uh, in front of this, doing this, doing that. I just, want to show, I just want to show the crowd what this person's been doing. Who the heck wants to be outed? Why is everybody twitchy? I don't really have anything on you. You don't get that. Who wants to be outed? Nobody. Especially when you're evil. If now, if a person stands up here and said, hey, I've been following this person around, and I just want to show you all the wonderful things they've been doing all week. You'd be like, go right ahead. Right? Expose me. That's not what's being said here. This is being exposed for evil sake. Who likes that? Nobody. And if we're to personify sin... And then its proponents, of course that's what it is. Of course that's what it is. So just like you would hate, maybe even the person doing that to you in public, you would hate that and hate what was going on. Sin hates the light. Would it be any less truth if it was truth about what you did? No. Not at all. But you would despise being outed. That's what that Greek word exposed really roots out. But that's how much, it, it shows how much sin and darkness hates the light. Because that's what it does to it. It puts it on full display. It can't hide anymore. See, sin likes to deceive and hide, right? Wolf's, uh, sheep's clothing. It likes to, to, to suppose it's good. Nobody wants to be you know, shown up as evil. You know, you want to look the part. 
even though behind you're evil. That's sin. And therefore, it hates being exposed. Because that's what light does. Turns the lights on. So, if you want to understand a little more on that, boy, I'm really plugging tonight for the publications page and the blogs. I encourage you to go to the website. It's there. And even if you want to read it in a different language, 85 different languages, for those of you of Portuguese descent. Uh, somebody, I don't know. <laughs> go to the website, read Covert Arrogance, Hiding Out in Plain Sight. That's the title of the book. Chapter 3, section reads, Arrogance Hates Being Judged. Read it. I've written a lot more on this subtle subject there. So please take advantage of it. Again, verse 20, what's it read? For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And that's that Greek word, elegcho, exposed properly to convince with solid, compelling evidence, especially to expose, prove wrong, connect strongs, reprove, rebuke, discipline, expose, show to be guilty. We believers, arrogance hates that. Uh-uh. Arrogance does not want to be fronted. Does not want to be outed. Does not want to, you know, if this is the bar, and righteousness is here, and guiltiness is here, or something like that, it does not want to fall below the bar. Arrogance is all about creature credit. If you try to corner them and put them under that bar, they're going to come out like a corner rat. And they're going to hate you for doing it. It's why, look around. Seriously, why is this building not five times the size? Because people hate guys like me. Because I represent the light. And if you come to a class like this, the light's going to get turned on. And you're not going to like it very much. And you're going to quit. And you're going to walk away. And you're going to go down the street where they just sing all day. Or they play games and religion. Oh, you know, hey, whatever. Just saying. People don't like the light. Why? Because their deeds are exposed. That's the whole point. Arrogance hates being judged. So if you stand for truth, if you stand for Christ, if you stand for light, they don't like you. It's that simple. So, anyways, where was I? We believers, on the other hand, you still in John 3? Yeah, look at verse 21, though. We believers, on the other hand, practice habitually the truth. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Show me my heart! Remember the psalmist? Show me! Lord, show me where I'm hurting you. Shine a light on me. Seriously, that's what I want. I just want to be pleasing to you. I'm sick and tired of this thing. Ugh. This thing. This beast. I'm tired of it. I just want to be pleasing to you. Show me the light. Some of you, that's a, that's a call right now in your life. Walk into the light. You're in the light positionally. You know what I'm saying? 
Walk as children of light. Better? He who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In the section, Arrogance Hates Being Judged, from that book, Covert Arrogance, the opening three sentences read this way. See, even for you lazy people who are never planning on going there. Next class, I'm going to do that thing I was telling you about. Say, I see all your IP addresses. I know whose belongs to what. And I'm going to say, only these three people went. And we're going to use deductive reasoning. Oh, it was only so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. Why is my name up there? Because <laughs> you didn't do it. Because you don't like the bald guy either. You don't like being exposed either. You don't want to be exposed as a, what, a phony? Someone who plays church? Someone who doesn't take in the full grace of God? Am I hitting a nerve now? Everybody's like, whoa, whoa. Whoa, settle down. No, I'm not going to settle down. Because you, that's arrogance. That's my whole point. That's arrogance. If the, if the messenger from God, the ordained shepherd in your life, says, go read this book, and you go like this, eh, what do you think that is? What, honestly, what do you think that is? Other than pure arrogance. And this is the point on the board. Arrogant people hate being judged. Why? Because their, fe- their greatest fear is that they will fail to measure up. Because that's what the light does. It turns the light on and says, here's the divine standard. <clears throat> here's the divine standard. Where are your affections right now? Who do you love? That's the whole point of all this thing. And if you're upset by that little, you know, blip in my voice, you're deceived by sin. That's the whole point. That's the deceitfulness of sin. You, my friend, are deceived by sin itself. And you just don't see it yet. You think I'm nuts, but I'm not. See, I've already been to the circus and back. Been there, done that. You're behind. I lead, you follow, right? So I must know something. He must give me knowledge. He must give me insight. He must give me wisdom to share with you, to drag you along, sometimes kicking and screaming, which means I can't always be your friend. That's why I usually, you know, I'm usually alone all day. Because all I really want to talk about, really, if we get down to it, is the Word of God. In my flesh, I go crazy. And some of you are like, man, I've been around you. And you get in your flesh, and you're all over the map. It's true. But deep down inside, I just really want to talk about God. And I really, truthfully, want to be pleasing to God, and I want all of you to feel the same way. So I don't want you to hide out in plain sight behind any deceitfulness, any uh, facade, any veil of sin. That's what this is all about. Arrogant people hate to be judged because their greatest fear is that they will fail to measure up. You see, the light shines into darkness, exposing sin 
for what it really is. You ready? Weakness born of man. Light shines into darkness, exposing sin for what it really is. Weakness born of man. God is not the author of sin. May it never be, right? God is not the author of sin. His creatures, beginning with Satan, are the authors of it. Of it. Therefore, up here on the board, since it was born of man's weakness, you know what? It is weak. It is infinitely weaker than the light. And the, the light and the matching out, however you like, the light and darkness analogy are perfect. Because darkness is completely helpless against light. When light shines, there is no resistance, you see. <laughs> That's it. The light has shined. Darkness is defenseless. But yet, isn't it the strangest thing? How many evil things can go on in the presence of darkness? Isn't that something? The power of darkness, but yet it's completely exposed to light. Since it was born of man's weakness, it is weak. Nothing of any real strength can ever arise from something weaker. Sin, knowing this, hates the light. Why? Because it always fails to measure up. The only way it ever measures up is by some other standard. Let's just take the whole game, create our whole and our own ballpark, call things good and evil within that little evil realm. Let's take the whole game and we'll we'll take our ball and we'll run. Right? Remember those games when you're a kid? I'm taking my ball, I'm leaving. We'll take our ball, we'll go over here and we'll play our own game. That way we don't have to be judged by the holy God of the universe. <laughs> we can set our own little boundaries. Make everybody feel good. Everybody at the end gets trophies, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Different kinds of evil going on in there. Sin hates the light because it never measures up. The only recourse it has is to counterfeit light. Remember, even Satan disguises himself and so do his proponents. The only chance they've got at measuring up is to counterfeit light in other words, to infinitely lower the bar, like the Pharisees did, and then play a game. There. That's the game over here. Play a, a different man-made game. We call that religion. Go down the street. Go this way. Go that way. There's plenty of religious churches around here. I'm sure a lot of people that have come here are sitting in them. Maybe not tonight, because it's not Sunday. You know where religion is most of the time. Knowing these things, sin hates the light because it always fails to measure up. It's like the bravado of the weak man who always, who's always trying to dominate every circle he enters. You know the type? You know the type? What he's really exhibiting, actually proving to others, are his weaknesses. It's his own insecurities that direct his exercise of power. See, these people a mile away, they try that crap. 
I don't know, man, maybe you can relate. I don't know, but it happens to me all the time. All right, let's, all right, let's, uh, can we just get this over with? What do you want me to do? Take my shirt off, flex. What, what do you want to do here? You want to, if you're a man, you know what I'm thinking. What, what, <laughs> what do we want to do here? Seriously, what are we doing here? Because you're obviously a very insecure man. And we need to go through this little um, charade, this dance that men go through. Right? I mean, women do it in their own way. I'm prettier than you. <laughs> you know what I'm getting at, ladies. So don't be getting all, you know, yeah, you men are ridiculous. When we do those things, we're just showing our insecurities. The only problem is that for someone who can see past all of that, someone who, say, doesn't see Christ in that person, they're not impressed. I usually walk away and pray for those people. I'm not impressed. And since they're not impressed, they reveal to Mr. Chest Rockwell that, that's funny, by the way, that's not really a guy's name, Chest Rockwell, no. that he's a farce. You see, deceit is wholly dependent on darkness. Light destroys deceit. When something that powerful is around something that weak, the weaker party is consistently fearful. When something that powerful, light, if you're darkness and you see light coming, you are going to try to get the hell out of there. Because that little bag of tricks that you've been hiding under the power of darkness, under the guise, of darkness, all the everybody's skeletons in the closet, and all the you know the stuff that nobody wanted to see on the screen earlier, you know all that stuff that's hidden away in darkness. The light's coming. You hate the idea of that even coming near, because you lose all your power. Because now everything's exposed. When something that powerful is around something that weak, the weaker party is consistently fearful. Up here on the board, the nature of sin. Sin is inherently insecure, especially around the light. Because sin is darkness. And the darkness hates the light. And so do its proponents. Why? Because they'll be exposed. That's the Greek word for exposed. Shown guilty. Shown to fall short. So sin is inherently insecure, especially around the light. Up here on the board... Sin is never satisfied with equality or some sort of truce. Sin's intention is to dominate then, nothing less. Since we stand in the light as believers, the only option it has is to masquerade as light, 2 Corinthians 11, 14 to 15, to counterfeit, to gain our attention. Now, here's where we ended up on Sunday. Oh, now this is what I love. This is what I love. And now maybe in recollection... When you hear me say, or anyone say, God, I love the book of Genesis. Just give me the first three, four chapters. I'm good. 
Why? Because all of the things that I've taught this evening, with all the little tendrils and the complexities and all that kind of stuff, it's actually really simple. It's actually disclosed. All those things, are you ready, are derivatives. They're all strung together all the way back to the garden. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You just have to understand what the heck happened in the garden. Man chose to disobey. Hey! Hey, you two! Don't eat from that tree! Eat from the tree. I told you not to eat from the tree. Now here's your punishment. I told you you're going to die. Now you die. Now you're spiritually dead. You're going to die physically. Does that need to be a rocket science? No. So really... What are we talking about with sin? Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. Okay, so as a believer, you were designed to love God. Amen? Okay. So if you're sending all your affections this day towards yourself, or, I don't know, some other jackass who batted their eyelashes at you, or flexed their muscles, or whatever it is they did to attract you, um... What do you think about that? Do you think that's within God's will? If God's will is to, for you to have undistracted devotion to the Lord, and your affections are over here, what do you think about that? Is that within the will of God? No. Then you know what that is? A sin. A sin. <laughs> Say it with me. It's a what? It is. It's actually a sin. Because it's not within the will of God. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Mm-mm. It's not on my list. I know it's not on your list. Because who the heck puts affection on the list? That's the deception of sin. That's the deception of sin. Sin would, would, will give you the list. We'll concede it. Didn't I do this, this, and this? Yes, you did. I'll concede the list. But don't give up my effect. Don't give up the affections part. Don't let that bald guy show you Holy Scripture that says even misappropriated affections are sinful. Don't believe it. My friends, believe it. That's why we're on this topic. That's why we've been on this topic for 14 parts now. Because nobody wants to believe that. Do you understand? Nobody wants to believe it. Everybody wants to believe this watered-down I almost said BS. Holy crap. Gospel. You don't have to have any real affection. You don't have to have any any sorrow whatsoever for any sin. God forbid. You don't have to have any of that. You don't have any real love for God. You can figure that out later. Are you kidding me? This is what we're this is what we're preaching from pulpits? This is what's attracting the masses? You bet. You bet. People want to hear that stuff. Why? Because they're afraid of the light. They don't want to hear about surrender. They don't want to hear about love for God. They use that as a punchline. Repentance? Like they just smelled a poop. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like somebody, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have a loving Father in heaven. Don't you think the baseline thing is affection towards Him? Don't you think that's His will of wills for all of us? Isn't that what we're going to be sharing in heaven, assuming we all get there? (laughs) Isn't that what this is all about? That God so loved the world? Isn't that what this is all about? Love? If you don't have any affection for God, I don't know what to say to you. I'd say you've got a really, really big problem. I don't care what the preacher over there said. I don't care what that one said over there. I'm telling you, you have a big problem. If you don't want to be pleasing to God, I'm not saying, like me, I want to be pleasing. I fail every stinking day. But if you don't baseline want to be pleasing to God, if you don't baseline have an affection for God, you have a huge problem. And that, my friends, is derived from that. Yeah. That is literally derived from that one little statement. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. Uh, let me just give you one more thing before we close. We've got about a minute. Ask yourselves a basic question. If you do something against the will of God and you don't even know better, is it still a sin? Technically, yes, it is. If you love God, you never want to offend Him, right? Is that fair? If you love God, if you're a born-again believer and you love God, is it fair to say that you, you don't really want to offend God? Fair enough? You're going to try to do your little playing around, you know, you're sinning on the side, you know what I'm saying. But really, at the end of the day, you don't want to offend God. Fair enough? Because you love Him. All right, here's an analogy, and I'll close. Have you ever said to someone you love, gee, I didn't know that what I said or did hurt you so badly. I'm really sorry. I have. Ever said that? Yeah. I didn't know. I'm sorry. Didn't know it hurt you. Didn't know it was offensive. I wasn't thinking, whatever. I'm sorry. Did it matter that I was acting in ignorance? No. No. I still hurt him. While the other person may have understood and shown forgiveness along the way, they were nonetheless hurt. Since you love them, presumably you stopped doing that thing. Fair enough? Because now you know you don't want to hurt them. So you stop it. And furthermore, you probably thank them for letting you know that you were doing something hurtful to them. Fair enough? Thank you for letting me know. I love you. I really don't want to hurt you. So thank you. Because now I know I'm not going to hurt you anymore. Thank you. This is how it goes with those who love God. They want to know their sins because they don't want to offend the one they love the most. Show me how I'm offensive to you. I love you more than anyone. Please. And when you're shown the truth of the matter, you say, 
thank you. Thank you. When God points out a new sin in you by shining light into darkness, you confess it and say, thank you. Your flesh may recoil because darkness, because of darkness, the domain of the flesh, hates being exposed, but that's all part of the gig. That's what the Spirit's getting at here. Where are your affections? Why do you want to know about the deceitfulness of sin? Why? Because you know, because if you love God, then you don't want to offend Him. Just like you didn't want to hurt that person that you love. And ultimately, when you find out that you've been hurting someone that you love, you say, thank you for letting me know. Because I love you in such a way that I never want to hurt you. That's what affection towards God looks like. And that's why understanding the deceitfulness of sin is so very important. And you can go on and derive over this weekend how you might find peace and happiness and all of that. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to gather together and learn your truth. Thank you for a truth that sets us free, Father. We know that is true and in place because you love us, and we love because you first loved us. Thank you so much. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.